What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian, and with us is Nando Vila, who is now the uh, full-time host of this show. Nando's a great friend of mine, um, and, you know, we came together with Michael and had so many important political discussions, debates. We would share stories together. So, Nando, I think that you're the perfect fit for this show, and I'm so happy that you're with us. No, I'm, I'm so happy, and I'm so excited to be working with you because I've always admired you very deeply, your honesty, your fierceness, your integrity, uh, all those things. <laughs> I just you. You're just an absolute powerhouse, so I'm, I'm very happy to be working with you. And I'm also, I, I love the fact that we're working with Jacobin. I mean, I, I love Jacobin. Uh, you know, if we grow up to... A better world and our kids grow up to a better world, I think Jacobin will have a, a large role in that. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so Nando and I actually met each other when uh, the full-time show that I work on, The Young Turks, uh, had sold a show to Fusion. Yes. And uh, we were traveling around the country, going to different college campuses to cover the 2016 election. Nando was on many of those episodes as an employee at Fusion. Um, you had like a pretty important role there too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Not a big deal. And I liked you so much that like within a month of, of meeting you, I invited you to my wedding. <laughs> so Hell yeah. Yeah. Which so, was so much fun. It was so much. It really was. I had a great time. Um, but, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm glad that we're doing the show together and uh, we're just going to pick up uh, where Michael and I had left off. So for today's show, we're going to discuss um, Afghanistan and some foreign policy with Abby Martin. She's the host and producer of Empire Files, and she has put together so many fantastic videos on various foreign policy issues. In fact, please check out her documentary on her YouTube channel, Empire Files, on Afghanistan. We're going to discuss that in greater detail. Of course, we're going to have our commentary segments, and we're going to bring the salt. Uh, Toward the end of the show, we're going to discuss... Some people who are urging schools to reopen prematurely amid the pandemic, they're not all members of the GOP. They're not all far right wingers. Um, there are some Democrats who want to do the same and we're going to call them out. So um, I'm really looking forward to that as well. All right. Well, without further ado, uh, I'm going to start off with my commentary segment today. And uh, it's really a critique of capitalism when it comes to something that all Americans claim they really value, and that's our privacy. So recently, I was unfortunately uh, targeted by a hacker, and I was unfortunately surprised at the amount of data uh, that has been compiled uh, by various websites uh, about me, about every single person who uses the internet. Uh, They get compiled by data brokers, packaged into nice little web pages, and then sold to pretty much anyone for a few dollars. And so it really started to make me question whether true privacy is available, is something that's accomplished uh, through a capitalistic system. And the fact of the matter is, no, it's not. You cannot have privacy if there is a profit motive behind selling your data. So I want to talk about that today. Now, Ayn Rand, like many capitalists, believed that capitalism actually protected your right to privacy. In fact, she wrote the following. (laughs) Civilization is the progress toward a society of privacy. The savage's whole existence is public, ruled by the laws of his tribe. Civilization is the process of setting man free from men. 
Now, uh, we are living in what's been referred to by various scholars as either uh, data capitalism, surveillance capitalism, and it's become abundantly clear that Americans cannot really have true privacy if we are functioning under a system of capitalism. And as a scholar Christian Fuchs puts it, Profitability and capitalism's economic freedom come into contradiction with political freedom, democracy, and social freedom, fairness, and equality. Capitalism is based on generalized commodity production by workers who do not own the commodities they create. And honestly, unlike Ayn Rand, Silicon Valley capitalists are pretty transparent today about how little they value your privacy, your rights, your freedoms. Uh, I'll give you an example from 2009 when then Google CEO Eric Schmidt spoke to Maria Bartiromo of all people and uh, seemed to say that, yeah, your privacy is being violated, but you shouldn't have anything to worry about. People are treating Google like their most trusted friend. Should they be? Well, I think judgment matters. If you have something that you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Listen, even if you are the model citizen, even if you aren't doing something that's quote unquote bad, the fact of the matter is under this system, your personal information is so widely available to various people who might want to actually cause harm. And and we've seen some of the ramifications of that already. So for instance, uh, credit bureaus, which collect all sorts of data on us, get hacked into All of that information gets sold um, in the dark web and you could be a victim of identity theft. So it's not even as if you need to be a bad person or do bad things for this type of commodification of data to negatively impact your life. But I want to give you some other examples that I think aren't being discussed enough. Now, oftentimes when we have these discussions, we miss out on the important topic of power, how this leads to additional power imbalances within society. And so um, in 2017, there was a great uh, research paper written by Sarah Myers West. And here's what she argues. Data capitalism at its core is a system in which the commodification of our data enables a redistribution of power in the information age. If communication and information are historically a key source of power, Data capitalism results in a distribution of power that is asymmetrical and weighted toward the actors who have access and the capability to make sense of data. This uneven distribution is enacted through capitalism and justified by the association of networked technologies with the political and social benefits of online community, drawing upon, and we all know this, narratives that generally fall within the rubric of technological utopianism. And we've heard all of those lies before. Oh, these social media outlets are great. They keep you connected. They help do this. They help do that. Uh, Without it, we wouldn't be able to keep in touch with old friends. Uh, But if you look at some uh, more recent research into that, social media has actually isolated us and made us far less social. Now, while most people are under the impression uh, that they're being provided a a service that enables free speech, social media platforms that make these types of utopian statements about uh, a connected world, in reality, create a situation where everyone becomes an unpaid worker. So let me explain. 
As again, uh, the scholar Christian Fuchs puts it, the users of advertising-based social media platforms are digital workers, the 21st century's digital proletariat. Because of the mistaken ideology that what is good for capitalist businesses' profits must be good for society, neoliberal politics and politicians are lax on privacy protections and regulating digital corporations. Business self-regulation does not work. It has become evident that it can easily advance threats to democracy. Fuchs also writes that data capitalism has an incentive to divide us. And we've certainly seen that in how social media has created these ideological bubbles, these thought bubbles. We've also noticed it in the type of advertising that definitely passes the bar at certain outlets like Facebook, for instance. So Facebook treats personal data as a commodity in order to sell targeted advertisements. For Facebook, it does not matter if the ad is about chocolate cookies or fascism. It only cares about selling targeted ads for the sake of profit. It is therefore no surprise that Facebook has tolerated highly problematic data practices. Its logic is that the more online activity, data and metadata is generated and the more potential profit emerges. Like people are under the, uh, you know, this perception or this assumption that we're being provided this incredible free service, right? Facebook is a free social network, social media uh, tool. Google is the biggest search engine in the world. But what does Google really sell? What Google sells is our data. All of that data is, is sold to third parties. That is Google's bread and butter. And that's certainly the bread and butter for Facebook as well. And so all of our data gets packaged up and sold. And unfortunately, that data does uh, make us vulnerable to all sorts of bad actors on the internet, whether it be uh, hackers, whether it be a stalker, it doesn't matter. So again, going back to what Eric Schmidt said earlier, this whole notion, this whole framing that you don't have to worry about anything as long as you're a good person, as long as you're a model citizen, it's absolute bullshit. And we all know it. Having this information readily available um, does make us vulnerable to bad actors, even if we're quote unquote good people who do nothing wrong. And then finally, I, I do want to just talk a little bit about regulation and whether, hey, maybe privacy can exist under a capitalistic structure if we just regulate properly, right? This is the kind of ideology that really drove uh, a lot of Elizabeth Warren's campaigning uh, during the Democratic primaries. But the fact of, fact of the matter is, under capitalism, with a profit motive, you're always going to find situations in which uh, corporations either find loopholes to regulations, either engage in government corruption to get these regulations lifted or loosened or weakened. And I do also want to give you uh, a specific example, because in Europe, there were some regulations when it came to the use of cookies. But guess what? Corporations found a way around that. Online advertising companies reacted to these regulations by turning to new, more persistent technologies like flash cookies, which are embedded in Adobe's flash player and web beacons, which track users through a small invisible pixel on their browser screen. At times, flash cookies can even be used to respawn deleted browser cookies, suggesting a particularly persistent effort to circumvent user controls. 
Now, what's even more terrifying is how web beacons work. So let's take a look at web beacons. Uh, likewise, they suggest uh, a persistent effort to monitor users' behavior. By using a single pixel uh, GIF or GIF, depending on how you like to say it, image usually colored to match the background of a page or email, web beacons allow for the tracking of a tremendous amount of data on a user's behavior, their typed entries and mouse movements, clickstream data, information from previously set cookies, and even recording conversations through a computer's microphone or images from a computer's camera. And as I mentioned, our most basic personal information is collected and sold by these so-called data brokers. If you've ever Googled your name, you might notice that there are various websites like Fast People Search, for instance, that have made your most personal information widely available to the public. In fact, people can even get more in-depth personal information on you if they pay these data brokers a couple bucks. And what amazes me is how capitalism never ceases to miss an opportunity to hit the same people that they've already exploited again. And so now we're seeing the emergence of this whole new industry of services that are meant to help wipe your personal information off of the internet. Your personal information that was sold by various websites that you use every single day, some of them to stay connected to your friends, yes. Some of them that you're literally forced to use because of your job, because of your place of work. And so unsurprisingly, you see these companies like Reputation Defender or Delete Me, which will charge you in a lot of cases, hundreds of bucks to wipe the internet in a lot of cases unsuccessfully, of your personal private data. So that's what capitalism has done to our privacy. I do not believe that you can have true privacy when there is a profit motive for Silicon Valley to sell your personal data. And so we do need to uh, question the economic system under which we're functioning if we claim to really care about our privacy rights. And some might argue, well, look, we don't have any constitutional protections when it comes to unreasonable searches and seizures by private corporations. But as we all know, private corporations work with the federal government all the time to share all sorts of private data and, and uh, communications we've engaged in in the name of national security. So that's one other thing to think about if you hear this uh, nonsense defense of private corporations violating our privacy. Wow, that was great, Anna. That was that, that was amazing. I mean, if you look at it, it's it really is a kind of we're heading toward a nightmare scenario, especially during the pandemic. I mean, if you look at the stock market, which has been going up throughout the pandemic and everyone's like, that's very weird. The, the economy is basically stopped and the stock market keeps growing. But if you look at it, it's the top five tech stocks that are driving the entire increase of the stock market. Like if you take out the top five tech, tech stocks, the stock market is actually down. So it's really being driven by Google, Facebook, Apple, these just sort of giant tech stocks, Amazon. And it's creating a situation where it really does feel like we're going to live in a world that is basically governed by these four or five corporations, right? And like we need to start talking seriously about the possibility that this public square, right, because the internet is, in a sense, the de facto public square today, and it is controlled by two or three corporations. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really just a giant threat to our way of life, social well-being. There's no ability to have a functioning society if it is, if the public 
avenues through which we communicate are controlled by two or three corporations. And yeah. I think that you can connect something like this to what's going on with the U.S. Post Office and how it's being gutted and destroyed. The U.S. Post Office is actually a good model for what a potential public utility of online sort of social media, to call it something, could be. Because the U.S. Postal Service, you know, for all its problems and, and, and defunding and austerity that has caused it to, 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 to get into like such a, in such a troubled space, actually does a pretty decent job of protecting privacy. You know, like when you send a letter on the U.S. Postal Service, like you don't worry that it's going to be kind of your, your privacy there is going to be violated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it, and it also has created, it also has created an institution that is pretty, has been done a pretty good job of, of avoiding kind of partisan um, manipulation, you know, beyond the sort of, because um, the nightmare scenarios are like, right, you know, you say you nationalize Facebook and Amazon, but then like, you know, a, a good president comes in and, and he does blah, blah, blah. And then the bad president comes in and does like, and like U.S. Postal Service has been able to maintain a certain degree of independence from whomever is in power at a certain point while still maintaining its public um, status. So it's it's something that it's worth thinking about um, as we go on, because if not, we're going to live in this kind of nightmare world where, you know, we all work for Amazon. Or I mean, I've Facebook. been I've been living. I mean, not to this extent that you just mentioned right now, but I mean, it's been a nightmare world for me for over a week now because of. Yeah. Just the sheer volume of uh, data, personal data that's been sold without my knowledge, right? And so yeah. uh, the effort to fix that situation as a public figure, especially who is going to be targeted yeah. again in the future, has has been very difficult. And I just want to quickly go back to what you mentioned about how our entire economy is really being driven by Silicon Valley capitalism. You're absolutely right about that. And that not only impacts the way that we're able to live our lives, it not only impacts our right to privacy and all of that, it also impacts foreign policy. Because it's not a coincidence that the Trump administration has really been ratcheting up their war rhetoric toward China. China is a significant threat to Silicon Valley Valley capitalism. And so if our entire economy is based on that, that's that's a powerful uh, incentive to engage in some sort of war uh, with China to uh, protect our economic interests, but also to protect our hegemony. You know, that's a huge part of it as well. But that's a conversation for a different time. Yeah. I mean, I remember when the Snowden thing happened, uh, the mind-numbing debates around like, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, like you have nothing to worry about. And it's like, what? Like, haven't you learned anything from any dystopian sci-fi novel or movie? Like, that's how it works. Like, it's not about, you know, the sort of fringe people doing the bad stuff. It's it's really about like people kind of growing up in an environment that creates a a sense of self-censorship. It's like not even knowing what the alternatives are because because you're being watched you know what i mean like it's just it's it's mind-numbing i mean that eric schmidt uh sound was just i mean it's just absolutely nightmarish (laughs) i mean yeah absolutely nightmarish uh and very transparent and he's not the only one i mean mark zuckerberg at facebook has said very similar things and it's just like this framing that also gets repeated by mainstream press about how Again, if you're a good person, you have nothing to worry about. But this is not a debate right. about good people or bad people. This is this is something that negatively impacts the lives of every single person without the yeah. proper, um, you know, 
without the proper model to function under. And right now, uh, I just don't think that you can have true privacy uh, and and true freedom under a capitalistic uh, society. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Well, should we talk about some some foreign affairs? Definitely. Okay. So let's let's switch gears to some foreign policy. Okay. So in a turn of events that should surprise no one, the United States government once again showed that it is actively and proudly engaging in regime change in Venezuela. Um, here is the United States special representative to Venezuela, Elliot Abrams, otherwise known as the Butcher of Central America, for his role in the hundreds of thousands of deaths there during Reagan's dirty wars, speaking openly about how the U.S. is trying to bribe generals so that they turn on Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Take a look. We do try to get messages through uh, to the people in the high command, sometimes publicly saying, look, Venezuela needs a modernized paid military, and you're not going to get it from Maduro. We need to reestablish the kind of mill-mill relationship we once had. I mean, that guy just looks like a cartoon villain in a Pixar movie. But, you know, uh, this was at a a Senate hearing on Venezuelan policy, and he was being questioned by senators. And here's what Texas's proud Latinx senator Ted Cruz responded by asking, what more can we be doing to coup Maduro? Take a look. So what more in terms of carrot and stick, can Congress do and can the administration do to change the calculus for the generals and admirals so that they come to the unequivocal conclusion, it is much, much worse for me if Maduro stays in power than if this illegitimate regime is toppled and if instead you have a democratically legitimate government in Venezuela? So, yeah. The American right is just lusting for some good old-fashioned regime change in Latin America. What could go wrong? Probably just a civil war there with a potential for hundreds of thousands of deaths. So what, may you ask, are our good liberals in the opposition doing to stop these warmongers? Basically, they're doing that thing that liberals always do, which is not to question the premise of the insane thing, just merely criticize it on narrow tactical grounds. Case in point, Connecticut's Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. If, when you say to Senator Cruz, you hope he's not there at the end of the year, how much of that is predicated on a continued belief that you can split the military leadership away from Maduro? And second, what did we learn from 2019 about the ways in which Maduro has successfully and perhaps surprisingly to American diplomats been able to hold together his leadership. Um. Yeah, um, then it got really embarrassing. Uh, Chris, Chris Murphy later tweeted, quote, then it got real embarrassing. In April 2019, we tried to organize a kind of coup, but it became a debacle. Everyone who told us they'd rally to Guaido got cold feet, and the plan failed publicly and spectacularly, making America look foolish and weak. He then continued, quote, it's a total disaster. After a year and a half, Maduro is stronger, American influence is weaker, and there is no viable path to restore democracy in Venezuela, a case study in interna- international relations malpractice. But that is our brave opposition, ladies and gentlemen. They believe, of course, we have the inalienable right to decide who runs any country in the world. The problem is that you Republicans are just going about it in the wrong way. But this wasn't always the case. 
Back in the 1980s, when the Reagan administration was waging a vicious war on Central American peasants, the Democrats in the Senate actually voted to pass legislation barring the administration from sending funds to right-wing death squads. I mean, that's why the Reagan administration had to do the whole complicated Iran-Contra affair. Now, it's not to say that those Democrats in the 1980s were these kind of brave radicals or anything like that. They were just the bare minimum you could expect from any decent opposition party. But today's Democrats are a far far cry from that very, very low standard. I mean, just look at the way they reacted to the coup last year in Bolivia. I mean, who could forget this Mother Jones editor Clara Jeffrey tweet? It's a first ballot Hall of Fame tweet. Quote, dicey times in Bolivia. Morales had taken several end runs around a democratic process, but let's hope it's a democratic process that succeeds him. Remember, Evo Morales, Bolivia's first ever indigenous president, was ousted in, a November, in the November of last year in a right-wing coup after the Organization of American States said that there were, quote, irregularities in that month's election results. I mean, the issue wasn't whether Morales won the election. It was whether he won by a large enough margin to avoid a runoff. But just a few months later, even the New York Times admitted that the OAS's claims were bullshit with this totally epic headline, quote, a bitter election. Accusations of fraud. And now, second thoughts. <laughs> the subhead reads, A close look at Bolivian election data suggests an initial analysis by the OAS that raised questions of vote rigging and helped force out a president was flawed. Whoopsie daisy, looks like the coup that both conservatives and liberals here in the United States supported was based on false info. Ouch. Now, Janine Añez, Bolivia's interim and insane right-wing president, has postponed the elections. She promised not once, but twice now. So I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fact that the guy running under Evo Morales' party is leading the polls by a wide margin. You know, maybe if he, I don't know, mysteriously caught COVID and died, then the election could go off without a hitch. But as long as he's leading the polls, I reckon that that election will never actually happen. And the totally illegitimate Janine Añez will remain interim president for a very, very long time. But of course, our liberals will never, ever reckon with this out of a combination of historical amnesia. I mean, they can't remember what happened two weeks ago, ideology and just plain stupidity. But I guess what bothers me most about what Clara Jeffrey and the Chris Murphys of the world is that they have no ability to grapple with how bad their heroes are when they're in office. I mean, sure, the Trump administration is full of bumbling fools and psychopaths, and that is reflected in their policies towards Venezuela. But what about when their guy, Barack Obama, was in office? You know, the cool, collected, smart president that we all miss so dearly. Well, if you go back to 2009, you had a very similar situation play out in Honduras, Manuel Zelaya, the country's democratically elected president, was ousted in a military coup, which Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton fully supported, despite the fact that basically every other Latin American nation strongly condemned it. Well, what happened in Honduras since then? Well, an insane right-wing administration took over, and they immediately got in bed with drug cartels while cutting social services. The crisis got so bad that it fueled mass migration to the United States through Central America. I mean, remember those caravans that everyone was freaking out about? Those were mostly coming from Honduras. And let's not even talk about Libya, another bit of regime change under Barack Obama that had the whoopsie unintended consequence of revitalizing the slave trade there. I mean, we cannot just criticize the right on these narrow tactical grounds. We have to reject their premises outright. 
But sadly, it seems like even a lot of self-described leftists have absorbed the logic of empire. Last week, the historian and friend of the show, Daniel Bresner, tweeted out a poll asking, are there any conditions in which a U.S. social democrat should support the use of military force abroad? 61% of the respondents said yes. Now I know, it's a Twitter poll. It's by no means scientific, but it's safe to assume that the vast majority of Bessner's followers are on the American left, and still a clear majority said yes. I said no. I cannot imagine a real-world scenario today which would justify sending in the current U.S. war machine because, unfortunately, you go to war with the war machine you got, not some imagined one. And the U.S. war machine today only leads to destabilization and mass death. So I refuse to weigh in on whether I think the Maduro regime is good or quote-unquote bad, because as an American citizen kind of operating in America, the only real upshot that can come out of criticizing an official enemy of the United States is sending in the U.S. war machine, and I know for a fact that that would be catastrophic. I love that segment, uh, mostly because there are too few people making the points that you're making right now. And for people on the left who think that there might be situations in which uh, this current administration could or should use military force abroad, you know, understand that we've been conditioned, uh, you know, for a lot of us since the moment we were born to think that the United States is constantly under this extreme threat. But in reality, yeah. we are the largest, um, you know, we have the, the, the strongest military capability. We spend more on our military than any other country. China is expanding its militarism and, you know, its military capability as well, but it's still no match for the United States. So, you know, if you want to make an argument about national security, we have the means and the capability to protect our national security without invading countries abroad. And, you know, Abby Martin uh, will later talk to us about this in, in greater detail. But if you look at what motivated the United States to invade Afghanistan, it really wasn't 9-11. It really wasn't that terrorist attack on our own country. Uh, there were other material incentives involved. And whenever you hear about the United States toppling a regime, it's always presented to the American public under this guise of spreading democracy or protecting a d democracy, protecting civil rights, uh, civil liberties, I should say. But in reality, what's at play is a country that has its own issues with human rights using this accusation against other countries to justify their invasion, right? So the United States has its own issues I mean, we have a social, uh, a civil uprising right now in the country because of those yeah. issues. And so do we want some other country to invade us because of the way, uh, you know, policing happens in this country? Of course we don't. We believe that we can change it ourselves. We don't want to be invaded. So what makes the United States think that it's acceptable to invade a, a country, kill countless civilians, which we've done in the Middle East, uh, which we're currently engaging in uh, with the war in Yemen, like, how is that going to help a country uh, prosper or become more, quote unquote, democratic, small d democratic? It's just it, yeah. that history has not um, really proven that. In fact, we've done the exact opposite. And, you know, I think at some point you and I should like engage in maybe a debate if we can find the right uh, guest to, to do it. 
I have a hard time believing that there's really a fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans uh, in office right now. And so I see differences in rhetoric. There's no question about that. But fundamentally, across the board, when it comes to questions of the economy, foreign policy, domestic policy, they want the same things. And it's all motivated by capitalism. It's all motivated by material incentives. Yeah, I mean, there was one of the best onion pieces ever was a um like a fake gala in washington that gathered a bunch of democrats and republicans to celebrate the 25th anniversary of continuously bombing iraq you know like the united states has basically basically been at war with iraq for this was at the time when this was published for 25 years starting from the early 90s all the way through the 90s, through the 2010s. And, um, and it was like, you know, all the, old, all the old gang was there. You know, Bush Padre, Clinton, Bush Jr., Cheney, you know, like Obama. Like, we all kind of participated in the destruction of this country um, over the last decades. Really just nonstop destruction. And you're right. I mean, when it, on issues of war and peace, there is a slight difference in terms of rhetoric. Like, I remember when we um, intervened in Libya, it was on liberal humanitarian grounds. I remember just, like, breathless media coverage about the oncoming genocide in Benghazi. I don't know. You probably remember because you're probably covering it at the time. And it was like, I remember Bernard Henri Levy uh, going, like, on TV yelling about how Gaddafi was about to commit a genocide in Benghazi. And it really drummed up support for military intervention. It seemed like, well, what do we got to do? We got to do something. We got to do something. You know, we can't do nothing. And uh, we did the thing. We did the something. And we got him out. We, he got a uh, gun stuck up his butt and killed. Um, and uh, yeah, the country has fallen into a state of total chaos, uh, just chaos, anarchy, slave trade, warring tribes. It just absolute disaster. And we never reckon with that. We never reckon with that. It's like we can only think of like the immediate kind of thing right there. Um, but I don't even right. think it's, it's there's. Yeah, I don't even think that's the bug. I really think that's the feature. I mean, destabilizing regions of the world again goes yeah. back to. Uh, a profit motive, really. I mean, we talk about the military industrial complex. It sounds cliche, but it's true, right? I remember reading a piece by Glenn Greenwald years and years ago, and, and he was showing how there's just this intentional effort to destabilize entire regions of the world because that's, that's you know, the money pit that our resources will keep going to, right? These private contractors will keep making their money. So it, you got to ask yourselves, is it really about helping countries out, helping the civilians of those countries. No. It can't be, especially when you consider even under the Obama administration. You know, what did he label civilians who would die as a result of drone strikes that relied on faulty intel? He called them collateral damage. That was yeah. a statement from the Obama administration, not from the Bush administration, from the Obama administration. So, you know, this is the problem with American empire. It is not meant to... Uh, create peace across the globe. It's it's really meant to destabilize uh, and to also, you know, aside from these uh, private contractors, to create situations in which the United States can take advantage of natural resources. That's also a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah like your bearded kind of uh, 
Birkenstock wearing protester at an anti-war rally who's going like, Iraq, man, it's all about the oil, man. It's Cheney and Halliburton, man. And I'm like, they're going into Venezuela because Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world, man. You know, like that guy is more correct in his analysis, like very, very correct in his analysis, like more correct than like the head of the Brookings Institution or the Council of Foreign Relations, who's like, well, actually, you know, it's a geopolitical game to uh, stabilize a region about, you know, like, and it's like, shut up, you know, <laughs> shut, shut the hell up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like that bearded guy at the protest who like smells like, like, like Patchouli ass or is a hundred percent correct. You know what I mean? And it's just, that's, that's the reality of it. Like, you know, the Bolivia, man, they're doing the coup because like the lithium trade and they have like 60% of the world's lithium reserves. And it's like, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, ben Burgess talked about that on the Michael Brooks show months ago. And it's just, it's just so on the money. Absolutely. Um, by the way, Ben Burgess uh, has a new show coming out and you guys should check it out. Yes. It's actually going to premiere today. Um, so uh, check out his Twitter page uh, for more details on that. Um, but in the meantime, why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, Abby Martin will be joining us to talk about all sorts of foreign policy, including this ridiculous narrative that we're hearing from both Democrats and Republicans about Russia uh, assisting the Taliban in attacking U.S. soldiers. Is there any truth or reality behind it? <laughs> Hint, no. Uh, but it'll be a great uh, conversation. So come right back. Welcome back to Weekends. Anna, Nando, and Abby Martin with us. She is the host and producer of Empire Files. Please follow that account on YouTube. It's absolutely excellent. So today I was uh, watching your documentary on Afghanistan. It was one of the most comprehensive uh, docs I've seen on, uh, you know, our involvement in Afghanistan, going back to, you know, what motivated the United States to invade the country in the first place. And so I thought we would start off uh, discussing Afghanistan since it's been in the news uh, again lately, uh, not for all the reasons we would hope, but because there is this ongoing narrative regarding how Russia is allegedly uh, arming and assisting the Taliban in uh, attacking U.S. soldiers in the country. Now, tell me what you think about that narrative and whether or not you buy any of it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things about the narrative that we need to dissect here. The first is that outlets everywhere just cited this as fact. And when you dig into the story that every outlet was just kind of running with that headline that Russia's paying bounties to kill U.S. soldiers, it was all predicated on anonymous U.S. intelligence officials, basically with no evidence backing it up. And you even saw the New York Times say that they disagreed within the intelligence community that this was a fact, specifically the NSA. And I think that the logic itself doesn't hold up. Uh, why would the Taliban need Russian money to kill U.S. soldiers? I mean, they've been fighting the U.S. for the last 20 years there. Uh, it doesn't seem logical to have to get Russian money in order to 
kill the enemy on the battlefield, right? But I think, moreover, it says a lot about the priorities of American citizens and the journalistic community as a whole and kind of this Beltway establishment press that only seems to care about U.S. soldiers dying when it involves Russia. This is a needless, endless slaughter that's been happening for the last 20 years where soldiers are dying all the time. And for some reason, people only are outraged about it when it involves Russia being involved in the killing of them. Yeah, you know, you you do talk about the number of U.S. soldiers uh, who get killed in these wars, and it gets ignored in the press. Um, you mention it in the documentary that I referenced, and I just want to go to a quick uh, snippet of that doc just to give the audience uh, a little of that flavor because it really was well done. Take a look. When polled, 90% of the Afghan people strongly support a deal with the Taliban. Here are Afghan women and Afghan army soldiers who had just been fighting them, taking selfies with the Taliban during a ceasefire in 2018. But since the negotiations are dictated by the U.S., not Afghans, it wields impossible language that gives Washington a blanket excuse to break it at any time. For example, many were shocked that the major peace deal finally signed between the U.S. and the Taliban on February 29th of this year signified that U.S. bases would, in fact, be closed. But it was a farce. The alleged U.S. withdrawal was all premised on the Taliban, quote, preventing any individual or organization from threatening the U.S. Huh. How could something like that ever be enforced or accomplished? How could it even be measured? The supposed political achievement was on such a flimsy foundation that it only took four days for the U.S. to call it off and start bombing the Taliban again. The constant tease of a peace deal with the Taliban seems to only serve the purpose of assuring the public that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Without the constant promise by Trump saying there's going to be a great deal, Washington would just have to admit that there is no end in sight. It's, it's so fascinating because the narrative really has been that Donald Trump, and honestly, I, I take ownership of this, I've repeated this uh, this narrative, that Trump is different, that he genuinely does want to end uh, the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, but you found evidence contrary to that. Right. And I think this is this is a pet peeve of mine. And I'm not calling out you, obviously. I think that you're an excellent journalist. I think that a lot of people um, believe in the rhetoric that Trump tweets randomly, like end the endless wars, right? Or he'll say the Taliban wants to make a deal. We're going to get out of Afghanistan. And it's hard to kind of break through that. And I obviously focus specifically on foreign policy. So I, I read the deal and I realized that the deal is not what it seems to be. You know, this is a deal that's been in place or, or teased to us since the Obama administration, actually. I mean, Trump, I think a lot of people got the story wrong when they said the intelligence community. I even saw people saying, you know, the deep state is preventing Trump from ending the war that he wants to end. Uh, and it's just really fascinating because Trump is a con artist, right? He cynically exploits that rhetoric to appeal to both anti-war and pro-war voices. But anti-war people continue to fall for it. Um, Trump doubled the amount of troops in Afghanistan when he came to office. He increased bombing. Uh, the fatalities there are higher than they've ever been. But when it comes to the deal, um, the deal basically says that we need a U.S. permanent fixture there. This is why we've not left Afghanistan yet. I mean, there's potentially $3 trillion of mineral wealth there, and they want the U.S. to be dictating the terms of that deal. If you look at it logically, it would be like saying we can't leave Vietnam until we reach a deal with the Viet Cong. I mean, we've known that we've lost the war right, for over 10 years. There's no military strategy out of this. It's time to just leave. 
take all the troops out, deal or not. The U.S. should be not dictating the future of the Afghan citizens. And it's just ludicrous to say that that we need to stay there until a deal is made anyway. And Abby, this this sounds this might be like a bullshit kind of CNN anchor question, but uh, um, you know there's a very good chance that in November uh, Joe Biden wins the election. Do you foresee any major policy shift uh, on Afghanistan should the Joe Biden administration take power in January of 2021? Um, in the documentary, we show Biden's rhetoric on Afghanistan. I mean, look, Biden was vice president during the Obama administration where Obama installed the massive troop surge where we saw, you know, countless numbers of troops trying to quote unquote win the war. It was a massive failure. It ended up just causing ridiculous amount of amputations, triple amputations, and also just fatalities for U.S. soldiers and countless Afghan civilians. And we can't forget the Afghanistan papers, which showed that specifically under the Obama administration, I mean, they just lied to the public over and over again once they knew that there was no strategy to win. And they just kind of had general replacing general replacing general out there lying to the public just to pass off the problem to the next administration. So Biden shouldn't be off the hook for that. Um, And he also was asked recently, you know, would you maintain a presence in Afghanistan? And he said, yes, I would, to the tune of several thousand troops. Of course, uh, I think Biden would be more movable than the Trump administration. I think that, um, you know, leftists and having an anti-war movement that links U.S. imperialism and and continues to talk about black and brown people being slaughtered abroad as well as at home, obviously more able to push a Democratic administration than a Trump administration. Um, and for the reasons that I said before, there seems to be some confusion that Trump is is really doing, you know, what what's really happening behind the scenes. So. I do think that Biden would be more movable, but at the same time, I think it's really, really apparent that this is a bipartisan, unanimous uh, thing. Imperialism is supported by both parties and the war machine continues to win no matter who's president. I mean, you're absolutely right. Under the Obama administration, the situation in the Middle East didn't get any better. I mean, he only expanded Bush-era foreign policy during his administration. Uh, he used uh, drone strikes at a, a higher rate than the Bush administration did. I mean, it's so I, I think it is important to like look at what motivates this policy, right? Because it really does go back to material incentives, uh, the material incentives that fuel the military industrial complex. You mentioned uh, the resources at play here. And, you know, there's been uh, this focus, this this real shift toward um, pretty terrifying rhetoric in regard to China. And, and I'm wondering if uh, you'd be willing to talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, there are several think tanks that have emboldened um, the Cold War against China. And I think it's really, really scary the amount that Trump has escalated, uh, not only the rhetoric, but of course, the policy in place. He's adopting literal like Steve Bannon talking points, um, you know, not only saying that this was a virus from Wuhan, uh, and calling it the China virus, which is just super xenophobic and xenophobic. But he's also kind of adopting these talking points from this really dangerous uh, think tank um, called the Committee on Present Danger China, where you have people like Frank Gaffney and Steve Bannon being a part of it that essentially are replicating the talking points that got us into the Iraq war, saying that we need inspectors on the ground um, analyzing this lab to make sure that the virus really didn't come from there. I mean, does that sound familiar to you? It's just, yeah. it's so scary when you look past Trump's ridiculous bigotry and you actually see 
you know, uh, plays uh, essentially starting, you know, not beyond just a trade war with China, but essentially it could turn into a hot war. And it's really, really scary. Yeah, you're seeing like a, a big kind of coming together of, like you said, the, the Bannon-like extreme right, um, but also like plenty of prominent liberals, centrists, you know, the list goes on of just coming together around this new China threat. Um, what do you make of that? But also like what should our policy towards China be? I mean, that's that's a big one. I'm I'm all for international cooperation. I think that the way... Um, Cuba is handling the COVID, you know, global pandemic as opposed to the U.S. really just says it all. This is an alleged U.S. enemy of, of uh, this country and they are, they just embody international solidarity, you know, and international medical help toward the rest of the world. They're sending contingents of, of doctors everywhere. They're helping people. And the U.S. is increasing sanctions, bombings, trying to install, you know, coups in other countries. It's just unfathomable what the U.S. is doing in light of this global pandemic when the world should be cooperating. You had even China sending PPE to other countries, you know, talking about how they would share a vaccine if, if they if they had a medical solution to this. So, you know, as much as we fearmonger about China, I'm under the impression that we should be completely open with what countries are deemed U.S. enemies and actually be sharing stuff instead of instead of fear-mongering and war-mongering against them. So it's really unfortunate because I do see a lot of liberals and centrists adopting the xenophobia against China and this whole ludicrous notion of banning TikTok when mm-hmm. actual, you know, U.S. companies are doing the exact same thing, if not more than TikTok is doing. There was even a Washington Post article that said that, you know, TikTok is not actually accumulating data and selling it to the Chinese government. So it's just it's debunked on so many levels. But if you want to direct your outrage, maybe you should direct it at the U.S. Silicon Valley corporations that are doing what we are told TikTok is doing first. Absolutely. I mean, I I just did a whole segment about how our data gets sold and how much that uh, makes us vulnerable to bad actors online, hackers, stalkers, all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, one thing that I forgot to mention is the fact that Twitter right now is uh, about to be fined because they were caught uh, using the phone numbers that people put in for two, uh, what is it called? Uh, Two-factor authorization. Um, They've been selling that to marketers. So, I mean, the kind of stuff that happens with Silicon Valley businesses in the United States is, is disgusting. But I think what, what really motivates uh, the Trump administration when it comes to TikTok and WeChat is that these Chinese you know, companies do threaten Silicon Valley capitalism, uh, which Nando perfectly mentioned um, earlier in the show when he said, hey, you know what? They're driving our economy right now if you look at the stock market. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, well said. It's amazing. And, you know, with China, Mark Esper uh, was working for Raytheon right before he began working for the Trump administration. Nice. And he, yeah, and he received a deferred compensation package, meaning that he will be paid uh, a giant sum of money in 2022 based on the stock value of Raytheon. So he has a vested interest, literally a vested interest, uh, to ramp up war with China, especially considering um, some of the uh, private military companies out of China are beginning to grow and are serving as a real competition to U.S. uh, defense contractors. So it's just always goes back to, you know, material interests. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's terrifying. And always done under the guise of 
protecting human rights and democracy. Exactly. Yeah, you can't yeah. get more cynical than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I also wanted to kind of piggyback off of Nando's previous question when he mentioned, you know, like, what should the policy toward China be? I'm in agreement with you, but I also have an issue with some people on the left who um, aren't honest about the actual abuses that take place in China. Right. Uh, And the abuses that take place um, in Hong Kong now, uh, Taiwan, I think I think the Uyghur Muslims and, and how they're being sent to these camps. Uh, I think it's important to be honest about those issues while also accepting that U.S. involvement and and ramping up war with China would be a complete and utter disaster. Um, I think that what's most hilarious about the Uyghur Muslim situation is the fact that you have people even from the Bush administration and Steve Bannon literally talking about Uyghur Muslims saying this is a reason that we need to be sanctioning China. We need to be ramping up this this cold war with China. Since when do they care about Muslims? It's it's fascinating to me. The levels of hypocrisy never cease to astound me uh, with the political establishment, especially when it comes to you know China and and Muslims around the world. I mean, we have a literal prison camp that we're operating in Guantanamo Bay, occupying Cuba still, where we're holding uh, God knows how many people still from 9/11 that were just lumped up, you know, and arrested. And it's just it's just absolutely insane to me that this context is omitted. And we just take these statements at face value. Bernie Sanders tried to cut the Pentagon budget with a, uh, a proposal, you know, to sort of siphon funds from the Pentagon to uh, help with the pandemic relief. Um, it's pretty remarkable. I think that we're in the middle of this pandemic and, you know, millions of people have lost their jobs in the United States. We need all kinds of relief. Um, yet the Pentagon budget increased. Elizabeth Warren attached an amendment to that uh, Pentagon increase bill that said that U.S. they they could have all the money that they want as long as they change the name of U.S. military bases to not include any Confederate generals. Abby, what do you make of this great victory for social (laughs) justice? Oh, my God. Okay, so a country where half of Americans are living in poverty, the military budget bigger than the next 10 countries combined, increased $100 billion under Trump. One year of this increase was more than Russia's entire military budget. So, I mean, this 10% proposal that Bernie Sanders is proposing, I think that he would like to cut a lot more. You have Barbara Lee saying, let's cut $350 billion. Couldn't agree more with that. Uh, good, good number to start with. Um, <laughs> but that 10% literally amounts to like what the budget was last year. It just keeps going up and up and up and up. And, and the missing context here is... And I want to get into Elizabeth Warren and how she fits into this, because, again, there's a near unanimous support for the U.S. empire. What is the missing context? The fact that the U.S. is the largest, most destructive and deadly empire the world has ever seen. That's what the budget is paying for. It's paying for an overseas empire. Yes, it's putting money in the coffers of the defense industry. Of course it is. But this is paying for an expanse of military bases, outposts. And these overseas contingency operations that are essentially terrorizing black and brown communities all over the world, increasing drone strikes year after year, and controlling and asserting dominance over these countries' sovereignty. And that's what Democrats will never talk about. Of course, Republicans won't ever talk about it. They love it, right? They'll, they'll just continue to give Trump uh, carte blanche to do whatever he wants. But unfortunately, you have the majority of Democrats doing the same thing, where year after year, they will kind of do these performative woke gestures that are essentially meaningless. 
I mean, let, let's face it. Elizabeth Warren has talked in the past about greening our military, making it more green. Um, and at the oh, same yeah. time, that's a classic. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a classic. No, Matt, Abby, you're completely wrong. I mean, the real problem <laughs> in Yemen is microaggressions. And, right, you know, right. the, the poor uh, uh, black and brown people in <laughs> Yemen now have the dignity of getting drone striked by a drone launched from a military base that's not Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. <laughs> Lee military base. I mean, that is a... That is what they really care about. It's the microaggressions in Yemen that's the real problem. More female drone operators, yes. like, like the Matt Forrest comment. I mean, it's just amazing. It's like, again, like the Democrats prioritizing this to rename bases instead of actually looking at the underlying systemic cause of the oppression of black and brown people abroad and also at home, because the vast amount of money that we spend on our, our military budget affects every single issue, whether you look at it in foreign policy or through a domestic lens, because this is why we can't have nice things, right? This is why we mm -hmm. can't have healthcare. This is why we can't have education. I think the increase of the military budget or the 10% cut, um, that would pay for like tuition-free college across the board. So it just shows you yeah. how ludicrous this number really is. And it keeps going up and up. And again, the vast majority of Democrats support it and are giving Trump the authorization to bomb, um, you know, warrantless spying powers, et cetera, et cetera. I think really bizarre. I don't know if you guys saw this, that insane thread from so-called progressive Senator Chris Murphy talking about yes. the coup in Venezuela. Yeah. We did a whole segment on it. A block. We did a whole segment on it. Oh, good, it great. good, good. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, this just really shows you where these people's priorities really are. American exceptionalism is a hell of a drug. Yeah. You know, I look forward to the uh, forthcoming Elizabeth Warren, Elon Musk bill to do a public-private <laughs> partnership to do electric-powered drones um, to save on some gas costs and some greenhouse emissions. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's unreal, you guys. I can't handle it. I love her. She's my favorite. She's my favorite politician in America. And yet, and yet Joe Biden won't even pick her. You know, he's talking about Susan Rice. It's of course just like, not. how, oh, so how is this real? Like, seriously, how is this real? Yeah. I mean, th that's why I, I get what you're saying about Biden and how he's more likely to, to move in a direction that we would like, uh, especially compared to Trump. But I also have like no like I don't uh -huh. fantasize about those kinds of things because it's unlikely. I mean, again, right. unless you really change the structure under which we're operating and the, the profit motives behind the wars we engage in, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And, um, you know, you just got to look at the core of the problem. And Biden's part of the core of the problem, <laughs> you know, oh my God. just yeah. like Trump has been just like Obama was just like Bush was. There's no question. And, and one final question for you. Um, because I just, I, I guess I don't get enough um, online harassment. So I'm looking to <laughs> poke the Tulsi Gabbard uh, bear a little bit. But since oh, we're talking yeah. about increasing funding to the military budget, I'm sure uh, Tulsi Gabbard, someone who speaks out against forever wars, voted against that legislation, right? Oh, my God. I, I mean, did she? You tell me. I'm, I'm assuming no. <laughs> She didn't. She did. Oh my God. Incredible. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is regime change war. What does that mean? You know, I mean, let's talk mm -hmm. about the fact that there's a thousand military bases, not including the lily pad bases. We have no idea actually the true number. What's a lily pad um, base? It's, it's an offshoot that is sometimes not even counted in the Pentagon's number. Um, Jeez. yeah. So we actually have no idea how many bases we're really talking about. So it's just, they're all secretly named after Confederate generals. <laughs> All those exactly. lily pad bases, those secret <laughs> ones. <laughs> oh, I saw even people saying, oh, you know, 
Tulsi Gabbard's a hero. She's going to be, you know, doing these, um, the National Guard duty for the COVID-19 thing. It's like, yeah, I don't know if I want Tulsi Gabbard, like, patrolling my neighborhood when, you know, we're doing the Black Lives Matter <laughs> All her protests. online like- reply guys <laughs> behind her with signs, you know, like, patrolling your neighborhood and all her, like, nerdy, like, reply guys just right behind her, you know, like, Tulsi, Tulsi, we love Yeah, you. it's just unbelievable. It's like, if you want a strong stance to be anti-militarism and anti-imperialist, quit the military. That's the first and foremost thing that you should do and, and speak out against it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Abby, you do such incredibly courageous Amazing. and important work. Um, Thank you. Nando you actually and I were go to the places. You, <laughs> you go yeah. to those places. Yeah. You, with, yeah. With courage. Your interview, your interview with uh, Rogan a few years ago um, about what's really happening with the right-wing government of Israel. I mean, that's incredibly courageous stuff. Uh, it's not what uh, media is really allowed to honestly report on, I think, in the United States. So thank you for taking the time to talk about Afghanistan, about China. And um, if you guys want to know what I'm talking about, check out Empire Files on YouTube. It's an excellent channel, especially if you want to know all the nitty gritty on foreign policy. Abby, thank you again. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Let's, uh, let's end the show with a little salt, yes, as I like please. to do. Please. Um, So, look, oftentimes when we hear about businesses or schools prematurely opening in the United States amid the coronavirus pandemic, where, let me remind you, we are seeing a surge of active coronavirus cases throughout the country, we think of, like, Republicans, right? I think that that's the narrative that we've seen in the mainstream press. Oh, here's a GOP lawmaker. Oh, look how callous he is. They want to reopen schools. It's so dangerous for teachers. And uh, to be clear, teachers unions do not want to open because it's premature and we have not handled coronavirus appropriately. But there are some people on, uh, I don't want to say the left, but some Democrats, some mainstream Democrats who are very open about their support of reopening schools. Um, one of them is uh, a, a reporter with the New York Times. Um, she is the person who started the 1619 Project at the New York Times. And so Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted the following. The discussion has grown completely hyperbolic to the point that it's virtually impossible to have on here. People are going to work every day in this city to act as if it's immoral to even have the conversation of how to open schools with a 1% infection rate is just. And so she's minimizing the infection rate. But when you consider that 1% of a densely populated city, for instance, um, is a high number of people, like you can understand why that's a callous statement. And again, we have not really handled this virus appropriately. Uh, That's why we're seeing these surges uh, throughout the country. And by the way, this is still the first wave. We haven't handled the first wave of coronavirus. There's a second wave expected to come in the fall. So understandably, teachers unions are like, uh, no, kids don't live in a vacuum. We'd have to educate them. And that puts our lives at risk. It puts our families' lives at risk. And there is some uh, newer reporting, newer data indicating that some children really do suffer serious consequences from this virus. One of the more recent studies showed that uh, some students develop neurological problems as a result of this virus. So we really need to understand what we're dealing with and maybe not make these types of callous statements. Now, it's one thing to hear a New York Times reporter say something like that. But it's a completely different thing to hear uh, Democratic leadership make similar arguments. And here's Chuck Schumer doing exactly that. 
What is one of the biggest problems facing us in the next month, as the speaker mentioned? Schools. Opening up the schools safely. If you don't open up the schools, you're going to hurt the economy significantly because lots of people can't go to work. So, Nando, that's really what's at play <laughs> beneath the surface. Schumer said it out loud, you know, we just want to open the school so we can free up these people. We, we got to free up the human capital. Yeah. Okay. You gotta we got to unleash the power of human yeah. capital. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's terrifying. You know, there is, again, it's one of those issues where we're seeing a confluence between the right and the liberal kind of spectrum of our politics. Um, the democratic leadership, the most influential liberal intellectual right now, probably is Nicole Hannah Jones. She's on board. Um, the conservatives are on board. So that means it's probably going to happen unless there is this wave of teacher strikes, which has kind of been starting, you know, like the, the Chicago teachers um, went on strike and within hours reversed, they reversed their position on, on whether they're going to reopen the schools or not. Um, you know, just shows that strikes work, that labor militancy is the way to get the goods. But yeah, I mean, it, it is really terrifying to see just again, you know, our opposition party, just completely laying down at the feet of the party in power, the right wing party in power. I mean, they just they they love to do that. It's their favorite thing to do. They do not do anything to oppose these people in any meaningful way. I mean, it is just absolute malpractice. I mean, we've seen that our nation is just not capable of dealing with the most basic civil society functions to, to control this pandemic. And to just reopen the schools, millions of kids. Who, I mean, it's not just the kids who could get sick. I mean, they, they could transmit it to their parents. You know, it's just it's going to cause like a chaos that's unimaginable. I mean, we are just not equipped to do it. You know, so instead of just like re-advocating to reopen the schools, like we need more relief for people to stay home. Like that's what we need. We need relief for people to stay mm -hmm. home. We can do it. It's just they don't want to do it. Like you said. They don't want to do it. Unleash no. the power of human capital. Um, to go back to work. It's yeah, disgusting. That's a, you're, it is disgusting. And, and it, that economic relief is something that Congress is obviously unwilling to really provide. I mean, enough relief for people to safely and comfortably stay home. Yeah. And even the head of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve recently said, if all you care about is the economy, right? You don't care about the human lives, but you want the economy to rebound. The best way to do it is to shut everything down, yeah. not like in a half-assed way like we did, you know, a few months ago, but to really shut things down. That's the only way you're going to like slow the spread of this infection of this virus. And then you got to do the contact tracing. Yeah. But, you know, the New York Times of all places recently published this piece that compared the United States to pretty much every other affluent country. And really, we are in a uniquely terrible position to deal with a pandemic because what's been drilled in people's heads over and over again is that what makes this country great is individualism, right? And so people think that any type of collective effort is some sort of terrible, dystopian violation of their rights, you know, so you can't get people on the same page. And then on top of it, of course, we have this whole healthcare system that functions on, under yeah. a profit motive. You know, we don't have enough hospital beds, and that's not an accident. We don't have enough hospital beds because, you know, private hospitals have done the cost-benefit analysis and decided, hey, why are we going to have empty hospital beds? We got to make sure we have the exact number of beds that are constantly full. 
So that's what we're yeah. dealing with. And and I think like it's 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 very tempting and it's it's obviously that the Trump has been horrible in his response to the coronavirus. I mean, there's just there's no way getting you know, getting around it. But like I just think that the the deeper institutional structures of this country are also just incapable of dealing with something like this, even if Barack Obama was in power or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. You know, like that they, they just they, mm-hmm. the 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 structures of civil society to deal with something like this have been decimated with decades of neoliberalism and austerity that even if someone was kind of like, imagine just a more competent person um, at the helm, it would be, it would still be an absolute nightmare to coordinate the entire response to the pandemic. And it's just, you know, again, it's, this is like a matter of life or death. This is not something to mess around with. So like the, the trade, the quote unquote trade-offs are, absolutely horrifying like we it's insane that people are talking about reopening schools like we're just nowhere near nowhere near there it's just it's not even close no no Uh, by the way this the state department had released a travel advisory for americans who were thinking about traveling to new zealand they're like "Mm, it might be dangerous yeah, we have literally 2.2 million active cases of coronavirus in the United States. You want to know how many New Zealand has? It's like 12. 23. Yeah. 23. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great travel advisor you have there. And, you know, some might be wondering, well, okay, the CDC has issued uh, guidelines, which, by the way, were interfered with uh, by the Trump administration and, like, revised. But, okay, there are guidelines. Maybe we can open school safely. Except let's take a look at what recently happened in Georgia. Two students had shared um, images on social media of what their high school looked like. As you can see, the vast majority of students are not wearing masks. Uh, They are certainly not social distancing. That hallway is just jam-packed with students. And uh, the school responded by suspending the two students who had posted on social media One of them, um, Hannah Waters, did identify herself. And after a significant amount of backlash, uh, the school decided to reverse the suspension. So they'll be going back to school on Monday. But the issue here isn't what the students did. Actually, what the students did was fantastic because it gives you uh, some evidence to how difficult it really is going to be to socially distance. And maybe opening up schools prematurely is a terrible, terrible idea. But at the same time, like the the real problem here is that, again, we haven't really grappled with this virus effectively, and we need to do that before we have any conversations about reopening schools. And look, for the parents out there who are stuck at home with your kids, I get it. It's frustrating. It's difficult. But you don't want to get sick. You don't want to get sick. (laughs) And you don't. And you don't (laughs) know how coronavirus is going to impact you. I think a lot of people have like this false sense of... Uh, security, but there are plenty of people who are young, healthy, and they've been impacted by this virus in ways they did not expect. So uh, yeah. we need to be cognizant of that. Yeah, and the, you know, the, did you guys did you see that that article in the Atlantic this week? I mean, Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of the Atlantic, who was just a, a heinous human being, was very proud of it. Um, but it was basically uh, they got some nurse to write a piece saying teachers should just do their jobs like I did. I mean, first of all, like I suspect we'll we'll figure out what there's something deeper going on with the commissioning of that article. Like, I mean, I what did they just put up like an open casting call for like we need one turncoat nurse to, you know, just completely blow up solidarity with teachers unions here. Or if there was someone there's there's probably something deeper going on. But regardless, Even if it's just an isn't. insane piece to commission, an insane piece to publish. 
you know, like just some random nurse saying like, oh, teachers, you know, you think you're a bunch of snowflakes. Like I put my life online. It's like, that's not. Like, you're if, a nurse. If all, it's your job. Your it's literally your job to deal with sick people. Like you, that's what you signed up for. Teachers are underpaid, undervalued, you know, they're, and they're not, they're not trained. They didn't sign up for a job where they would have to like constantly defend their life against a virus that is killing a lot of Americans right now. So, I mean, even if there's nothing shady behind like the commission of that uh, article, the logic just isn't there. And but so, uh, the, yeah, the teachers ahead. coming back to school is going to make this nurse's job impossible. Like it's going to yeah, overwhelm the healthcare point. system and more, you know, like there's not enough nurses. They're going to get sick. Like it's insane. It's insane on so many levels. And it was just like one of the, you know, like you own, you can't, you can only see this thing in, in the American press, like the, the bastion of liberal intelligence of the Atlantic just publishes this absolutely grotesque piece. I mean, it's just, it, it, it made me angry to no end well you can just avoid liberal inte- intelligentsia altogether by um subscribing to this channel yes. um subscribing to jacobin which by the way has a new issue out and kale um our wonderful producer do you want to jump on for just a few minutes and talk about the new issue there it is there it is great cover nice let's see the back cover oh yeah absolutely in memory Ooh, of our friend nice. and comrade Michael Brooks. I'm not sure why oh, my issue of all issues has like thumbprints on the ink. I'm going to have to talk to Oscar. Yeah, what, yeah, come on. What's going on there? But uh, yeah. Well, so the new issue, it's, um, I guess we're doing the issue plug. Let's do an issue plug. Let's do it. So here, I got to try to make sure I'm angling it right. New issue after Bernie. The, the cover actually based on uh, a really great photo of uh, The Liberator, which was an early 20th century left magazine. And the cover had Debs. It was in 1919 kind of, um, I believe that was in the lead up to his running. Or no, it was, it was directly after his running uh, from a prison cell for president and getting a million votes. And so it's kind of a, a nice nod back to kind of... Uh, probably the other greatest American socialist aside from Bernie Sanders. Ah. Uh, and, but there's, there's a lot of great pieces from Matt Carp, from Jared Abbott mm. on uh, kind of uh, electoral strategy, understanding what happened, how do we go forward? Um, how should socialists orient themselves towards electoral politics? Um, great pieces by uh, friend Anton Yeager, um, Marilyn uh, Arwood and uh just it's a great issue. The, I hear uh, I hear it's more more cheery than the cover would suggest. Because I was very depressed after Bernie was murdered by Barack Obama and the rest of the awful libs. But uh, what, what I heard it's more cheery. I heard it's more it's got a sunnier outlook than than you would expect from a black an all black cover. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I the the last piece is actually by uh, Jack own Seth Ackerman on kind of uh, basically just making the case that like we are in a much better position than we were years ago and the fight is only going to get more intense moving forward. So, um, no, it's <laughs> so weird doing a plug, but it really is a great issue. Do it, baby. And Come on. My, my personal feelings on, on the magazine are that the last like year has been that much better. It's been like exceptionally good. Uh, and that's, you know, big props to, to homeboy Connor Kilpatrick for being the story editor. But Issues great. You should all subscribe. And uh, one more thing, though, I wanted to on the on schools reopening and um, 
thinking, you know, I, just the point that Nando's making, I think is so important of just this like across the board institutional failure that uh, it really, it speaks to the issue of American federalism of the fact that yeah. like the way that power is distributed in this country where uh, small towns or high schools, for instance, like in Georgia, have to basically make these decisions on their own, it only leads to reactionary outcomes because they have no means mm-hmm. to actually correctly address these problems. So, yeah. you know, there's all different other kind of ideological and political conservative aspects to say a high school in Georgia. Yeah. But like, but the thing is that like, it's fundamentally like it stems from the fact that like these are underfunded schools that they don't have the resources. And so the only real means of actually addressing these, these problems is censorship. It's like, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, have to, we have to reopen and we have to silence anyone. It's it's funny. My I have a friend who uh, actually went to that high school and, uh, you know, he no longer is a high school student. But when he was in high school, he You're went to friends with high school kids. <laughs> Kale? <laughs> no, Chris is actually he's older than me, but he um, he 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 worded this really funny. He said that what's ironic is that uh, essentially the the administrators of the high school they have the mentality of the state functionaries overseeing the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's like when you, when you're just so strapped for resources, like that's Mm -hmm. all you have. It's just, it's repression. Um, Yeah. And yeah. And to to the federalist point and and to the deeper institutional rot that exists in America, I mean, California where both Anna and I live is run by like standard Democrats, you know, like they're not like particularly good. They're not like particularly bad. They're just kind of your standard issue. They're pretty bad. They're they're, pretty bad. I mean, all Democrats are bad. I'm saying like within the the kind of Mm -hmm. the Democratic Party framework, they're like middle of the road, whatever people, you know, typical. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's awful in California. I mean, Democratic governors, Democratic yeah. senators, Democratic mayors in Los Angeles, you know, all the major cities. Just awful, awful coronavirus response. So, again, it's not just the orange Cheeto in the White House that is our problem. I mean, it's just such a deeper institutional rot, like a total, absolutely failure of our leadership class. Um, and and like you said, Kale, like, I mean, just the, the smaller the political unit uh, the more reactionary. I mean, families are so reactionary in general. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's just how it is. The, the larger the political unit, the less reactionary. That's why, like, all this federalism stuff is garbage. Right. And and when you have economic insecurity, uh, when you have, like, a global pandemic, when you have all of these things that are just massive stress and anxiety and people wondering, like, am I going to have enough money to pay my rent or to feed my family? then like things only become that much more tribal that you, you, you know, you're protecting what you have, the people you care about, or if you're an institution, the, uh, the members of that institution, you're, you know, you got to keep it chugging along. You got to, you know, week by week, make it. And when you have like economic insecurity, things get reactionary very quickly. It's like, of it's me versus you because this is not survival. Yeah. Definitely. That's why the, the goal of any socialist is to have an internationalist outlook and to have the scope of history be long, you know, because that's the only way you can transcend these kind of, you know, the tribal reactionary instinct that exists in, in, in a lot of us and all of us really, you know, is if you kind of can transcend those those political units to something broader, deeper, our shared humanity, our shared struggle, all that good stuff. And and end artificial scarcity. That's yeah. We we only we're fighting over crumbs because that's what the market gives us. And so 
on that note, uh, yeah. we have a we have a couple of minutes to do super chat questions. Oh, uh, fine. oh let's do it. So, uh, for our lovely audience, if you want right. to put some questions in the chat, we can do our best to answer them. Um, you know, it can be ideally, you know, the most serious, pressing questions, the most <laughs> historical debates, uh, or you know, you could ask some fun questions too. We can All do. Right. This. Let's do it. Um, so what do we got. Of course, there's a, like a minute delay, so I'm just waiting for. Mm. We're just trying to fill air awkwardly. You know, we're professional broadcasters. This is how we fill air. Yeah. Have you guys heard about the new issue of Jack? <laughs> 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 oh yeah. my gosh! You know, yeah. it's 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 this this episode is um, obviously like bittersweet, but I'm digging it. I'm I'm, I'm really happy to do this show with you, Nando. Um, I appreciate and, that. Yeah, and, and look, you and Michael, I don't know if you guys did it wittingly or unwittingly, um, but, like, through our conversations, I feel like you guys, like, radicalized me in certain ways, you know? And, like, in a very gentle way, um, yeah. pushed me in the right direction. Um, I think if we both kind of reached the same conclusion was that you were gettable, you know? We never really oh, spoke about it. I see, it. I see. You know, mm-hmm. we never really spoke about it explicitly, uh, but I mean, I, I was I hung out with you. Like we said, we did the show in 2016. It's been years. Um, and I was like, you know, Anna, you know, she's 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 gettable. You know, she's not like she's she's not she's not gone beyond the pale. Um, mm-hmm. She's definitely gettable. So, yeah, no, I'm 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 so excited to do this show. Like I said, I think I, I love Jacobin. I think it's amazing. Um, you know, I'll. I'll never forget when Ronan Burtonshaw, who's an editor at Jacobin and now runs Tribune, in his uh, launch event for Tribune magazine, which is a, a very old magazine out of the UK that Bosker and the Jacobin crew kind of helped revive, and now Ronan edits. Um, I remember at his launch event, he said something along the lines of like, you know, our arguments are the right arguments. Our historical analysis is the correct one. It's been vindicated by hundreds of years. Like, we need to bring this to the rest of the world. I'll never forget like his speech in that event. It's like always echoed in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something that, that is true that the, these old kind of arguments have, have been worked out. Like they're, they're timeless and, and they will win the day because they're the correct arguments. They're the right arguments. And we just have to be confident enough to put them forward to a large audience. Like we need to win over a mass audience. And that's what I hope we can do. I mean, I hope we can do it in, in some small way, but that's, that's, I think that should be the goal. Um, so yeah, shout out to Ronan Burdenshaw. Great, great Irish lad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have a couple questions that we can start with. Uh, one of them comes from uh, Robert and he mm-hmm. asks, do you think that meeting in person is essential to forming political organizations? Question mark. Video chat calls with the DSA have been less than ideal. Um, so I don't know if you guys are active in any DSA chapters, but maybe if you want to take a, a more expansive version of that question, um, and then I, I can share my thoughts a little bit too later. No, I actually really love that question because, you know, I didn't want to take over the entire show with an insanely long commentary segment. Um, but there was a point when I was prepping that segment where I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, about the... I guess the perception of political uh, movements or uh, the perception that you have as an individual in engaging politically 
simply by doing things online. And so there's been more and more research into that. And it shows that, you know, in your brain, like it triggers in your brain that you've done something meaningful simply by posting about something. But in reality, it's not the same as, you know, building these like deeper social bonds with people when you meet them face to face. So, um, you know, I want to read more uh, research into that. I think that it's actually pretty true. I think um, Twitter, for instance, a lot of people think Twitter is real life, but it's not. It's really not. It's not even like a slice of real life. And so, you know, our effectiveness in whatever we do on social media is is truly limited. You do need to build those social bonds in person, um, to get things done. So I don't, I don't blame, uh, was it Robert? Yeah. I, yeah, I don't blame Robert for feeling as though the, uh, virtual meetings aren't, I guess, as robust as meeting in person. Yeah. I remember a, a Jacobin kind of stream with Ben Fong where he was like, I mean, just totally log off. I mean, social media is just absolutely awful. Like it's just, it's just antithetical to any sort of real left-wing uh, organizing. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty on board with that, with that notion. You know, there's everything online is bad faith. Like, you know, it's, mm. it's just the definition of it. And it's just much harder to do that in person, you know, and it, and it's, the I've seen I've personally seen kind of very inspiring um, coming together of people that otherwise wouldn't you know like I remember I, I hosted this was years ago um, I hosted the annual m- meeting for the fight for fifteen movement um, in this was in um, in St Louis and um, I mean it was just like seeing all those people together everyone was kind of it. it had formed these very deep bonds in, in, in this shared struggle. Um, and it, I got the sense of like, you know, this is unbeatable, like this is unbreakable. Whereas bonds that are forged online are, man, they turn in a second. Like you do the, one oh, bad, yeah. you say the post or you, you say the one bad thing that you weren't supposed to, your take was slightly off of the, whatever it, it had to be the, whatever the correct take of the discourse was in any moment. Um, and man, you are out. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not a fan of just kind of purely online. You could use it as maybe as a tool, but, but it's, it, it's yeah. super subservient. It has to be super subservient to, to the in-person stuff. Right. I agree. The, yeah, I mean, I basically completely agree with the two of you on this as well. Um, and the question asking, is it essential? Meaning like, is it absolutely necessary I don't, I mean, like, I want to say, no, it's not absolutely necessary to be in person, but I think it might be. I I really think like, I I don't, I I think almost under any circumstance, like you really do need to have that kind of in-person activity. And also just because like politics is largely built through common struggle of common actions of like, and victory and victory. Exactly. yeah. Yeah. So like it's, you you kind of necessarily need to be in a in a you know whether it's a workplace situation or a campaign fight for something like Medicare for all or um, you know uh, you're organizing tenants in a building or you know it just it really it's not going to come through online and as uh, you guys have already said and as that we, the video we did with Ben and, and Amber and, and Matt. Like it's online brings up the worst tendencies in people, um, yeah. especially, especially like with a group of people who even in me, like, yeah. I was up last night Everyone. arguing with Everyone. some idiot on Twitter 
about some dumb soccer thing. Like, I remember thinking, what am I doing? I'm such a loser. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like, I mean, I've definitely taken the bait, too, when there's, like, yeah. a pile-on. And I'm like, why? Why am I going to? Don't, don't do it. But, uh, like, there's, again, it goes back to incentives, right? And so I think uh, Matt Chrisman has, like, the best uh, explanation for why people engage in that toxic behavior. And you should listen to that video um, on the Jacobin channel. But really, like... In this like ecosystem, you're looking for ways to stand out as like the most woke or the most progressive or the most right wing, the most whatever. Right. Mm. And so uh, it's just not Twitter is not conducive to good behavior. It's just not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so a couple more. Um, Well, this isn't a question, but someone wrote and I think it's worth shouting out. Rafael Pena writes. I just wanted to say that in honor of Michael, the left has to get more international. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult. And I think that is a part where like, obviously uh, online organizing, I think will inevitably play a role yes. in this of like being able to communicate between groups or movements in different countries. But uh, you know, I think we're going to hit, you know, limits on that as well. And yeah. so I think, domestic organizing kind of local organizing has to happen in person to the greatest extent possible. And I think even international, whether it's solidarity or actual, like, you know, cross nation organizing, I think necessarily is also going to require some more kind of in-person activity. Yeah. Um, So there's another question. um, And I don't want to, put you guys too much on the spot and maybe I can do it first. I'll, I'll take the question first so that I'll let you guys think a little bit, but ZA asked uh, to honor Michael, what are some great books on international politics uh, to uh, read? What, what would you recommend? Um, yeah. So uh, things that come to mind, actually one of our recent guests that we had, Vivek Chibber, um, it's not a book, but it's uh, a piece that he wrote in 2009 called American Militarism in the U.S. Political Establishment, The Real Lessons of the Invasion of Iraq. And it's kind of a historical overview of the Iraq war, but also kind of the Marxian lens of like, you know, how, how do we interpret kind of um, the state, uh, kind of international relations, um, hegemony, global hegemony, um, militarism, um, it's, it's a really great, you know, in just like 40 or 50 pages, it's yeah. from the socialist register a couple, a while back, like really good kind of concise overview of, um, or I don't want to say overview, a teaser of kind of, you know, let's say like, uh, I think a really like analytically strong, yeah. um, and kind of Marxian, uh, take on, on militarism, on foreign policy. I also want to just throw in there, um, of course, like there's the great um, uh, there's Leo Panitch um, and Sam Gindin with the makings of uh, American Empire. I think Global Empire. I think Global Empire, actually. Um, and then there's a great book, um, you know, if you're interested in the Cold War, uh, there's Perils of Domination um, by Gareth Porter. That's mm-hmm. worth checking out. Um which is again, kind of, it's a bit of a revisionist history on kind of like, why did we actually end up in Vietnam? Um, which uh, was kind of at the time when it was published about 15 years ago, it was like this radical kind of transformation of the field. And I think now has pretty much become uh, more mainstream and it's, it's approach to 
to foreign policy. And um, so those are those are a couple off the top of my head. Do you guys have some? Yeah, I have two. I mean, I'm well, I'm currently reading Vincent Bevins' The Jakarta Method. I'm like halfway through it, um, uh, and I recommend it already. Talked I mean, about that book a lot. Yeah. yeah, I highly recommend it. It's very good and it's very readable, and it's it's just it's just a great book. So, The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. The other one that I would suggest um, is one that I read in college uh, many many years ago uh, called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy uh, by uh, William Appleman Williams. Or the tragedy of American foreign policy. I don't remember. It's it's by William Appleman Williams, um, and highly recommended. And it's it's like a great kind of primer for the gettable people. You know, like if you have someone who's gettable and um, needs to have like some sort of like a eye opening experience, that one is a good kind of first start. You know, like if you really want to get your kind of feet wet on sort of a, a, a a, a very good and robust left-wing critique of American foreign policy that has stood the test of time. William Appleman Williams, highly recommend. So um, let me mention a few things that kind well, directly and indirectly answer the question. So first off, please buy Michael's book um, because in it, uh, he actually lists uh, books that he not only read and, 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 would recommend, but um, helped him in the research of that book against the web. Um, so please purchase that uh, from an independent bookstore. That's the way he would like it uh, rather than on Amazon. Um, I And even though this book clearly isn't specifically geared toward uh, foreign policy, uh, what Michael would always talk about on his show, like incessantly, was Capital by Marx. And uh, that is That's not an easy one. book to read, but That's because of him... Because of him, I did read it, and I'm really Whoa. glad that I did because it helped to really shape my understanding of of how the world works, and foreign policy is certainly a part of that. In terms of um, other foreign policy-specific books that I would recommend, uh, The Devil's Chessboard is really good. It's written by Alan Dules. Um, I'm sorry, it's not really written by Alan Dules. David Talbot, but uh, he talks about the CIA. I mean, the whole purpose of this book is to talk about the CIA and how Alan Dules, the CIA, um, you know, had a big role in attempting to overthrow uh, Castro, and, and there's a lot more. You, you definitely want to check out that book. It's very long, but it's a good read. Like, you'll enjoy it. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Damn, I didn't know you read Capital. That yeah, Capital is impressive. <laughs> it's like, not, a, let me, let me just say, that's not a, it's not, that's not it's a, a weekend, dense book for that's sure. That's not a weekend kind of beach. I'm on the beach, you know, getting my tan on yeah. and reading Capital. <laughs> no, there was a lot of, um, all right, I need to stop and, and read some analysis online and, like, get a, a – and, yeah. and there are – there are great resources online that can really help like decode some of that for you. So definitely check it out. But I'm grateful for reading that book. Um, I never talked about it. Uh, the only time I mentioned reading it was to Jank, uh, when he mentioned like an Elon Musk tweet that like, what did he say? How did he react to that? I don't even remember. I don't remember what Jank Jank was trying to make an argument about how Elon Musk is a moron. I think if I remember correctly, but it was a recent Elon Musk tweet where there was like a meme about Karl Marx and Capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It I just that it one. said like yeah, das yeah. Kapital. Like that's what yeah, it yeah, said yeah. on the on the meme. And then Elon Musk like said something stupid and defamatory. But my point is like I mentioned to Jank uh, that I read it, but I said Capital instead of you know yeah. what that meme said. And then uh, yeah, I just it's it's a, it's an important. I think it's an important book to read. 
for those who for those who don't want to or can't read Capital for whatever reason because it is a, it is an undertaking. The David Harvey yeah. series on Capital is a good. Yeah. You know, if you want to do the cliff notes, uh, it's very Harvey, good. Yeah, the David Harvey series on Capital is is worth your time. Yeah, I relied on that a lot okay. <laughs> to decode things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's invaluable, truly. Um, I don't see any more Super Chat questions. Um, oh, okay, actually, okay, no, we just got one. We got we got one, and I think All we right, have let's... a place to end. Um, who does Nando think, it's worded a little strange, uh, I guess, Nando, who do you think is better, Maradona or Pele? Oh, Maradona, always, always in my heart. Listen, uh, it's, hard, you, it's hard to compare athletes in different eras, right? But... You know, Pele, you know, his prime was really in the 1950s and 60s. He only played in Brazil, never kind of was really tested uh, beyond that. Again, that's not to say that he wasn't an incredible player. Um, but, you know, he was de- definitely like a physical freak at a time where there wasn't as many uh, physical players around him. Maradona is the god. He is the genius. He was put on this earth to kick a soccer ball around. Um, and the way he was able to lift incredibly mediocre teams uh, to achieve great things almost single-handedly is unprecedented in soccer, which is really, really a team sport. But he was the only one who could really kind of... Ele- I mean, if you look at his 1986 Argentina squad, bunch of bums, bunch of bums on that team. No great players except for him. He won two Scudettos with Napoli in a time where Milan was great, Juve was great, Inter was great. Bunch of bums on those teams, and he uh, and he elevated them to win two league titles, which is just like maybe one of the greatest sporting achievements ever. Maradona is the king. He's also just like the man. Everyone watch the Asif Kapadia doc on Maradona. It is a hundred percent worth your time. It is awesome. And your interview with Michael about him that was yeah. that was a really great interview. Yeah, that was fun. I, mean, I told the whole story of, of Maradona's uh, relationship with Castro. Um, which was, uh, which was, he had, there's like a really funny story about Maradona giving Castro a toilet seat. And it's a long thing. I'll, I'll get into it at some other point. As an Argentine, I completely agree. There you go. <laughs> I didn't know you were, I didn't know you were Argentine, Kale. I didn't either. Mom's side of the family. Nice. Actually, okay. One more, one more plug for the issues is that we have a piece by Dan Finn that opens up by talking about, uh, the Capadia uh, film on, on Maradona. And also I have Ronan Burrenshaw texting me right now that he's upset that I didn't plug his piece. Ronan has a great piece in the new issue as well. <laughs> I plugged the entire Tribune magazine, Ronan, you yeah. bastard. I, trug- I plugged your 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 talk uh, at Ronan, the launch event. You log on and say no, it. I can learn a thing or two from Ronan. He's, you gotta you got to plug your work. You really do. Yeah. And I'm terrible at it, so I'm glad that he's doing it. I think that's... Yeah, I think we're good then. I think we... we All right. Issue, or Thank you so much. number 16 checked off. Nice. In the can. <laughs> awesome. And thank you to everyone who's watching. Um, one of the best ways that you can support this show is to share it. So please share this uh, video with your friends, with your family, everyone you know on social media. Um, because if this show grows, the message that we're trying to put out there will also grow. And uh, we could use your help. Thank you, and make sure you subscribe to Jacobin. See you soon.